Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. Today's show also brought to you by The Vault at Stock and Barrel in Egan, a collection of specialty and pre-owned firearms for collectors and enthusiasts. Learn more at StockandBarrel.com. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. Welcome, everybody, to the broadcast. I am Rob Dreesline from Outdoor News. Very happy to be with you for the next one hour. Uh, gorgeous weekend, huh, folks? I mean, I, I think I said it a week or two ago about how the colors were peaking. Well, I was wrong. Uh, the colors are clearly peaking this weekend uh, in the Twin Cities metropolitan area. Absolutely gorgeous. I think we we're all worried that we'd have bad colors after that drought all summer, but you know, maybe maybe this latest round of rain here we've had in the past few weeks uh, helped uh, boost the colors because they were impressive. Uh, just you know, the light it was just it was all marvelous. Anywhere I went this weekend, I was just uh, just couldn't believe how great the colors were. A good time of year to identify buckthorn, by the way. If you've got European buckthorn and you're trying to identify it to get rid of it, it usually stays green longer than almost everything. There's exceptions, so please, every green plant out there is not European buckthorn, but uh, it's a good time to uh, to help identify it. Uh, we've got uh, we're coming off last weekend's pheasant opener in Minnesota, and then this weekend was the uh, non-resident opener out in South Dakota, which was traditionally the regular opener in South Dakota. South Dakota. Now they've got a residence opener earlier, and I think they even have a youth opener. So those birds out in South Dakota see a lot of pressure even before uh, the non-residents arrive. The non-residents, by the way, who pretty much uh, supply the bread and butter for that state's natural resources management, non-resident pheasant hunting fees go a long way to finance most of the game management in the state of South Dakota, that and the excise taxes that they get from the uh, from the feds, which uh, comes back from expenditures from hunters, uh, shotguns, ammo, that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know. I wish I've always thought South Dakota could do a little better job respecting the non-residents who pay the bills out there. But uh, hey, it's their state. Uh, I've got a family that hunts in um, kind of what west of Aberdeen, south. East of Faulkton, maybe 45 minutes tops, maybe not quite that far from the river. Uh, and I've gone out there a time or two with them. Did not get out there this year. Asked for a report, and they said perfect weather, uh, but not a lot of birds. You know, seeing some birds, but uh, th- this crew usually does very well. But it sounded like they only had three birds on the weekend. Went to some public land parcels and saw a lot of pressure. I, you know, I think there's been pretty good reports, certainly in Minnesota. And from what I heard last weekend in Minnesota, the, it was it was solid, maybe a little mixed. Uh, so maybe a lot of people buying licenses and, and heading out there. Certainly the weather is great, and even a bad day of uh, pheasant hunting is beats a, beats a day in the office, as they say. So uh, I hope everybody, I hope folks are driving back. Uh, maybe had a little better luck than uh, than my family's crew out there. If you want to check in and uh, give us a report, I'd love to hear it, 651-461-9226. We are live and local here in the Twin Cities. Uh, what else? Uh, wild Rice Soup Weekend. Yeah, I whipped up my first back, batch of Wild Rice Soup based on some of the uh, uh, the Wild Rice I, I mentioned a month or so ago that I harvested, and it was finally felt like it was cool enough to justify a batch of, of, of that. So, uh Got that brewing in my gut. Going into the weekend, a fairly big industry story broke. Uh, Vexilar, uh, a Bloomington-based company that uh, 
constructs fishing electronics, specifically well-known for ice fishing electronics. We found out that the longtime owner there, a gentleman named Steve Ballman, brilliant engineer uh, who went on to uh, you know, become uh, you know, a CEO of the company, has sold Vexilar to an Iowa-based operation called Valiant Wealth Management. Uh, so uh, congratulations to Steve, a well-deserved uh, golden years retirement coming his way. I, uh, I I hope he's uh, he's able to enjoy some years after after selling the company. But Vexlar, I tell you what, if you have not been ice fishing without a Vexlar, it is a whole different game. And not just Vexlar, there are other brands, but they're kind of the oh man, they're kind of the industry leader, right? In a lot of ways, uh, the the little the little round dial. And the first, and I, I you know they don't advertise on this show. I'm I'm not trying to you know make the pitch, but I will say that the first time I went out. And used a Vexlar and, and and again other ice fishing electronics and learned to use it. It was like this should be illegal. I, you know, it just you you see the fish you you I, on a Vexlar it's just a dial, right? You don't actually see an image of the fish like you would with an underwater camera, but you see them approaching the lure, that sort of thing, and it's just it's and in fact seasoned ice anglers who go fishing without uh, of Exile. They call it fishing or, or any electronics. They call it fishing blind. I was out fishing with a bunch of these guys once, and I dropped my line down a hole, and, and I caught, I think I caught an eel pout, uh, a burbot, and uh, there were a bunch of guys around me using electronics, and they didn't they, they didn't caught anything. They are like, Rob, are you fishing blind? That's what they say when you're ice fishing without electronics. You're fishing blind. But uh, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a great local Twin Cities industry, outdoor industry success story, Vexilar, and uh, they've been around since 1960. Uh, the FL8, I think, was their was their big unit back in the day. They've got a bunch of others, the FLX28. Uh, so uh, pretty wild, I think, that uh, that that company has been so successful. And I'm I'm happy for Steve Bauman and other employees there. Uh, well, one other note on pheasant hunting last weekend. Tim Spielman, the editor at Outdoor News, I asked him how uh, his season went, and and it went okay. And then I asked him, uh, hey, did you see any ducks? And he just kind of bit his lip, and he was almost kind of mad. He's like, I should have got up early and gone duck hunting because all that rain we had two weeks ago, uh, there was a lot of sheet water, as they say, out in a lot of fields. There's a lot of, you know, everybody, we talked about a couple weeks ago, a lot of ponds have water in them. He said they all had ducks in them. So he said there were ducks everywhere. We still have not had super cold in this state. I don't think I've had a hard frost at my place in the southwest metro so uh, still a lot of ducks in the state, still some good opportunities out there. I probably ought to get in a break. Uh, what do we got coming up here? We're going to talk with the gentleman who's on the front of the hunting regulations. I'm excited to talk to him. And a little later, we're going to talk with my friend Sharon Staitler, the bird chick. Sharon is up in Alaska. It's fun to touch base with her now, and then she likes to talk about what's going on at Denali National Park and also when she see, what she sees for birds migrating south because some of them – are going to come through here in Minnesota. Let's get in a break. Don't go away. More WCCO Outdoors after these messages. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I'm Rob Jerislein. Hey, I uh, I saw the front of this year's hunting regulations, and I said, you know what? I want to talk to this guy. I bet he'd be a great interview on WCCO Outdoors. And I, uh, I tracked him down through a mutual acquaintance and talked to him a little bit on Friday and you know what? I'm very confident we're going to have a good time here the next 10 minutes. His name is Mo Vang, and he joins us now. Mo, welcome. Uh, good to talk to you. You are a, uh, you're a North Sider, right? Did you say you uh, you hail from uh, the North Metro? 
Oh, yeah, I'm currently in uh, Blaine right now, but I grew up in um, on the uh, east side of St. Paul. Yeah, and Mo, you are on the uh, front of this year's Minnesota hunting and trapping regulations with your daughter. Uh, tell us how that unfolded. How, how did you end up? Did, did someone from DNR call you and say, hey, uh, we, we saw this picture? Did, they, did the picture come first, or did they contact you and ask you uh, if you could submit a picture? Oh, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I was on the uh, DNR website, and, you know, they had a section where you could submit photos for, like, um, social media. So I went ahead and submitted that uh, picture of me and my daughter on there, and a couple months later, they reached out to me and said, hey, guess what? You're going to be on the cover of the regulations, you know? (laughs) Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I wrote my I happened to write my column this week about a new U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service report, and I thought the timing with that, with when I, I recognized you on the regulations, was serendipitous. Perhaps uh, this new Fish and Wildlife Service report has a lot of data. It talks about the economic impact of hunting and fishing on a gross domestic product here in the United States, which. To an outdoors writer like myself, I've seen that a lot over the years. We've reported it, but I still think it's important to share that with with the public. But there was some demographic data that really shocked me. And all and although, you know, Caucasian folks, white people comprise the majority of license holders, there's a, a user group that actually buys more licenses per capita than any other demographic for both fishing and hunting. And it's Asian Americans, folks like you. And I it, it, Gave me pause. I mean, certainly here in Minnesota, we see a lot of Southeast Asian citizens, Minnesotans like yourself, who get out hunting and fishing. But this is clearly something that I guess is happening nationwide. And, uh, you know, I I think it's great. I think it's awesome that we've got uh, relatively new Americans here who are embracing these outdoor pastimes. It's an important part of your life, it sounds like, uh, based on our previous conversation, Mo. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Like, uh, for us, I think it's... um more of like a cultural thing for us to go hunting and fishing because the first generation um, Americans that arrived here to the United States, like what they did um, back in Laos or in the motherland, they had to hunt for a living. You know, that's mm-hmm. what provided food for their tables. So now as, the, as like a second generation, they passed that, um, that tradition or that culture down to us. And I'm not really shocked by those numbers, you know, because I know, like, almost everyone I know either hunts or fish. Yeah, uh, exactly. I think anybody who's been a field in Minnesota, particularly southeast Minnesota, some of the public land parcels down there, uh, has encountered a, a lot of southeast Asian Minnesotans out, you know, enjoying our sports and, and partaking in them. Uh, one thing that, that jumped out of me about this photo is you got your daughter out, and when I have encountered a Southeast Asian folks hunting, it's usually all men. Let's face it, you go hunting, it's usually all men, no matter what, what the, the, the race is. Now that's changing, I think, for the better. But why is it important to you to, to get your daughter out? Do you think that's changing you know, w- within your community, too, that, uh, that uh, more folks are, are getting their, their, their daughters out hunting and fishing? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's um, kind of changing as well to get um, – your kids into hunting um for me for my daughter i knew that she was just going to pick up my hunting because every time i get ready to go hunting she's already at the door trying to go with me so right when she turned five she actually used her birthday money to buy herself a 410 or i bought her a 410 to go turkey hunting with me 
And that picture was actually her first turkey, and it was a tom. So, yeah, you could see, like, the actual, like, changing of, like, um, uh, us parents taking kids hunting in our community. So That's fantastic. You know, there's a little point there I want to I wanna make. Uh, back in my day, <laughs> I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it never would have occurred to me to use a 410 to go out turkey mm-hmm. hunting. And now we've got new cartridges from Federal and other folks uh, that pack a wallop. And so, you know, young kids, uh, you know, women, smaller women, smaller folks in general can go out turkey hunting with a 410 and they can kill a bird just like your daughter did. Your daughter's name is uh, Vanna, right? Yep, yep, Vanna. And I'm I'm just shocked at, like, uh, like how you said, like just a 410 can just knock a turkey out cold. <laughs> like I use my 12 gauge and you can still see like, you know, floppage, but with the 410 tungsten, uh, those birds were just knocked out cold, you know? Hey, I want to, I want to take a uh, challenge you on one little point you made. You, you said it's, it's cultural. Mm-hmm. And I, I have no doubt that the vast majority of, of Southeast Asians and, and for a lot of other folks, hunting is a cultural thing, but I tell you what, mm-hmm. I've, I'm seeing more and more um, members of your community, uh, they've been working hard. They've been in this country for a couple mm-hmm. generations. They've they've got some bank accounts. They're out there zipping around in Ranger boats. Uh, it looks to me like they're just having a good time, Mo. I don't know how much of that's cultural. They're yeah. out there, you know, they're winning bass tournaments, things like that. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's we're just slowly starting to get into like the recreational side of like this this sport, um, and I think it's just the uh, it's just going to continue to grow you know, in our next generation, we're going to pass that down to the next generation. And yeah. Tell me a little about your day job, Mo. Uh, you said you worked at, uh, uh, you, uh, materials management. And so you were, you had some, you had the overnight shift, uh, which was yeah, pretty nice yeah. for your hunting and fishing uh, hobby, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're from Metro uh, transit. Um, and I work overnight in uh, material management. Um, but yeah, Overnights, it's um, it was it was good until I had kids, you know. So <laughs> once I had kids, I, I'm just you know, at home being a uh, a dad during the day, and then you know trying to find sleep throughout the day. And, sure. Yeah, I I, I, I can relate to that. Uh, you got a couple kids, Mo? Uh, yeah, I have three. And are, are the other ones? Is is Vanna your oldest? You getting the other ones out yet? Yep. Yeah, Vanna's the oldest, uh, so she's six. Um, and then my son, uh, Mosley, he just turned four, and I've been taking him out hunting as well. Um, we went out uh, dove hunting, and I pretty much, like, scoot him around in, like, uh, 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 what's it called, a uh, wagon, one of those radio flyer wagons. And we just go out <laughs> through the field, and he'll just sit next to me and watch <laughs> the birds come, and you know. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm trying to get the whole family involved. Um uh, to try to start like a tradition within our family. Mm-hmm. And I see that my friends or family, they're reaching out to just to ask for like tips on how to take their kids hunting or, you know, how to get started. So, um, yeah, the exposure on the, um, regulations, you know, it's, it's a really good thing right now. That's fantastic. And and for folks who just jumped mm-hmm. into the broadcast, we are chatting with Mo Vang, he, he and his daughter, Vanna, are on the front of the 2023 Minnesota hunting and trapping regulations. They've got a turkey that Vanna shot. Was that a public lands bird, uh, Mo? And, and is that where most of your hunting occurs? Do you have some private land access? 
Uh, so that was public land. And um, so, yeah, she actually skipped school that day. And, um, well, don't tell her teachers, but she skipped school that day. We didn't get out <laughs> until like 9 a.m. in the morning. And we heard turkeys working all around us. And finally, you know, I was like, okay, we were in a blind. So I took the blind down and I told Van, I'm like, hey, we're going to climb this hill. And, you know, she had it in her because, like, every 10 yards, I would say, Vanna, uh, look, look at that leaf. You know, it looks like a heart or something. You know, trying to keep her entertained. So as soon as we got to the top of the hill, you know, I set up the blind. And about, like, half an hour later, just Tom just comes strutting out right into the decoys, you know. Mo, I'm curious uh, your take on a, on a quick question. If, mm-hmm. if Asian Americans are the biggest per capita demographic, in the hunting and fishing sports right now, and, and we want to be clear, this is per capita. There, mm-hmm. There's still, you know, there's still way more white folks out there buying licenses. But do you think right. the the outdoor industry is missing an opportunity by not marketing to folks like you more often? Uh, yeah, I do. I do think that it's like a market that's like unnoticed, especially in our region. Um, I've I noticed that like ice fishing companies, just like clam and otter, they they are starting to take notice of it. And we have, like, some pro staffs that mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. actually, you know, with Clam and Otter. Good. But in, like, the hunting realm, I, I think that there is a market that can be reached. Um, and I'm not sure. Like, if someone could figure that out, like, it would be um, beneficial for their company. Yeah, because I, I'm at the Northwest Sports Show every year selling subscriptions to Outdoor News. I see a lot of uh, members of the Southeast Asian Minnesota community uh, running around that show, they're looking for deals. They're buying gear. They're ready to go. They're they're very active in these sports. That that you know that's the other thing. I think there's there's a lot of folks. You know, maybe they're one one weekend wonders, right? Uh, they go out, uh, yep. you know, heroes one weekend. I don't think that's. I, I'm generalizing, but I don't think that's the case with your community. I think you folks are you get out a lot. No. Yeah, yeah. They're you know people in my community. They're really passionate about this this uh, sport. You know, hunting or fishing. Once they get into it, it's like you know, it's a way of living now for us, you know. <laughs> well, Mo, I'm getting a signal that I need to probably take a break here. I could keep talking to you longer because you're, you're a great representative for your community and all hunters and anglers of any race, creed, or color. Thank you for what you're doing to get your kids involved, and it sounds like you're doing doing a lot to recruit other people too. So thank you. It sounds like you uh, your, your presence on the regulations is very well deserved. It's a great photo. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, nice chatting with you. We'll, uh, we'll talk again sometime. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Take care. Mo Vang. You can see him on the front cover of the Minnesota Hunting and Trapping Regulations that came out here eh, late summer. You should have one in your glove box right before you go hunting, so check it out. Congratulations. Great young man. Nice getting to chat with him for a moment. Let's break. We will chat with my friend, the bird chick, Sharon Staitler, when we return. This is WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Jerislein, Managing Editor-Publisher of the Outdoor News on this Sunday, October twenty second, 2023. This segment, I would like to check in with a friend of mine. She is a public affairs officer up at Denali National Park in the heart of Alaska. She moved up there a couple years ago after living in Minnesota for many years, where she developed a little celebrity status as the bird chick. She's a hardcore bird watcher, and I thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, what she's seen for birds and what she's hearing about birds across North America as we get into the heart of autumn. So with that, I'd like to introduce my friend, Sharon Birdchick-Steitler. What is cooking, Sharon? 
Uh, we have snow already. Yeah. <laughs> I was checking the weather. You know, we got daytime highs here in the 50s in Minnesota. Looks like yours are in the in the 30s, and you were telling me off air already had some single digits, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, already had single digits. Uh, I've already had seven inches of snow that has come and melted, and now we're just at the point where just every day you should expect at least some kind of dusting of snow. Sure, and the days rapidly uh, getting shorter, too, up there, aren't they? Yeah, it's uh, we lose about six and a half minutes of daylight a day this wow. time of year. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm noticing it here, too, every day, how, how quickly we're losing light. And up there, I'm sure it's, uh, it's, it's even more pronounced. And, yeah, you're just two months from the winter solstice when it gets uh, downright dark, doesn't it? It does. And what's crazy where I live, the sun doesn't clear the mountains. So when we get that four and a half hours of daylight, it's kind of a dusk daylight because sure. there's there's no sun. Uh, there are places I can go if I if I need to like stand and face the sun. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, but the northern lights are spectacular. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I've, and I've, I've seen some good uh, some good writing recently about the northern lights. Well, hey, let's talk a little bit about Alaska and some, you know, you were telling me off air that you love Denali National Park, but for a hardcore birder, it's not exactly uh, the Shangri-La, is it? It's uh, you got a couple months a year when it's it's really prime for migration, but otherwise, a good chunk of the year, the the selection of of birds to look at is is kind of narrow. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's pretty bleak uh, in the wintertime. It's it's mostly Canada jays, a couple of magpies, some ravens. I will go to the Three Bears parking lot, the grocery store, to look at ravens when I'm really desperate because I'm not allowed to feed birds in the park where I live. But uh, yeah, I might throw some peanuts to ravens because I'm just like I want to look at a bird. <laughs> right, right. Now Denali, of course, hardcore interior Alaska. You were telling me down Anchorage Way, uh, coastal, a little better selection year round, huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a friend that lives down in Anchorage, and I will go visit him. And uh, yeah, last winter we we did some birding around there, and uh, got got the obligatory bald eagle. Bald eagles are rare up where I am hmm. in the interior because we don't have enough fish. But but no, we got American dippers. We even had they have robins year round in Anchorage. Hmm. Yeah, I, I believe we got them here year round in Minnesota. If they can handle it here, why not Anchorage? Coastal Alaska is really a prime place to see bald eagles, isn't it? I mean, that's oh. a lot of photographers go up there to get pictures of bald eagles. Yeah, and there used to be that woman on the Homer Spit who used right. to throw uh, piles. But now they have signs up saying, do not feed the bald eagles. They, they don't want that anymore because they did become problematic. Like I remember seeing a picture of someone's car that had a couple of juvenile bald eagles perched on it, and they could not get the birds to leave the car alone. And they'd sit there all day, and they'd poop on it. And eagle poop is... Serious stuff to have. I would car. think so. They eat fish, so that's got to be pretty toxic. Uh, yeah, and it's just a bad look, right, for the national symbol, waiting for handouts of, of, of fish entrails, pretty much. Yeah, fish entrails. Although I, I have seen a number of bald eagles at uh, city dumps. Oh yeah, I, I don't. I don't <laughs> doubt that. And hey, I mean, I, when I'm in the Boundary Waters, we always take our, our fish guts out to a rock and leave them, and the eagles, gulls, whatever, come and get it. So I, I guess I've been guilty of that too. But uh, at, at least not on a on the scale that, that you just described. Uh, what about golden eagles? Do you see those in Alaska, uh, interior Alaska? It would seem like that would be a little more of their habitat. That That is the common eagle here. The, if I'm going to see an eagle in the summertime, that's that's the species I'm most likely to see. And we actually have golden eagles that breed in the park. They breed in the polychrome area. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. And the, one of the perks of being here in the summertime is we also have jeer falcons that nest in mm. the park. 
North America's largest falcon. So, so that's pretty sweet. Yeah, they're uh, really an, an impressive bird. Do the golden eagles migrate? I know there's golden eagles farther east in northern Canada. You and I have talked about it that migrate south and and hang out in the bluff country of western Wisconsin and southeastern Minnesota during the winter. Do the eagles up the golden eagles up there take off? Yes, they uh, they're also migratory, and the ones here they're going to go down to the western half of the United States. Sure. You do have some pretty big rivers bisecting uh, southern Alaska. I don't know if they go all the way up to Denali, but it would seem like, yeah, I've seen some of those rivers. They look almost as big as our Mississippi in in, uh, in Minnesota anyway. And where you've got open water like that, you can have eagles. Now, obviously, that's frozen probably in the winter, but do the eagles, the, the bald eagles, follow the rivers up uh, during the, the warmer part of the season? Yeah, they they tend to go where there's there's more fish, and in in this part of Alaska, there just there isn't enough fish to like really sustain a, a a good bald eagle population. There's also an issue. I'm not sure if this news has made it down to the lower 48, but salmon is on the decline up here. Right. You know, it's a big issue for uh, a lot of the Alaska natives who rely on that for their food for the winter time, and the salmon runs just aren't what they used to be. So that that could also be a factor as well. Well, yeah, and that that's a big issue. I mean, there's a lot of folks saying that, uh, you know, sport fishing is really important to the economy up there, and should the, the commercial fishing of salmon be uh, curtailed a bit so that, that you can maintain the sport fisheries as well as the uh, subsistence fisheries that you alluded to? Big topic. I'm glad we don't have to worry about that one uh, down here too much. Not yet. <laughs> Give climate change time. Yeah. I feel yeah. like up here it's it's very accelerated. I do feel like I do have a front seat to climate change in that not only with fish, but also with the caribou herds. I talk to our bird biologist in the park, and she talks about the birds that you used to be able to see along the park road that you just don't see now. Like wimbrels used to be fairly common, and now I have to kind of hike to find one. Yeah, so so it's it's, it's accelerated. I mean, I can mention this. I mean, it, it was big news. We, we had a road that was built on a rock glacier, and right. the ice melted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And roads slid away. Exactly. And that's been a big story. I mean, I think nationwide, everybody should be aware of that. And uh, the park is in the process of trying to repair and, and restore that road. Is that correct, Sharon? Yeah, currently uh, a bridge is being built over that section. It's known as the Pretty Rocks Landslide. And you, you can you can read all about that on the uh, Denali website. But yeah, yeah, basically what happened my first summer up here was it had been melting and the road had been sloughing and the maintenance crew had been able to repair it. But then in uh, the fall of 2021, it just the ice was melting at such a rate that they couldn't maintain the road in a safe way and have people on top of it. So, yeah. And that road goes all the way kind of into the center of the park. So because of that pretty rocks landslide, that road is basically kind of cut in half right now, isn't it? Yeah, it is the only road in the park. And yeah, it slid away right at the halfway point. So if you want to get to the town of Kantishna, which is at the end of it, it's fly-in only right now. But, uh, you know, it's closed off access to Wonder Lake, which was popular campground. It's closed off access to our Isleson Visitor Center. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a big deal. But you can still access it out to about the mile 43, which is a really fantastic view. And I know a lot of backpackers like to jump off that road mm-hmm. and go explore the interior. So they can't get any deeper than, like you said, about mile 43, mile 44, unless I suppose they fly into the, the, the town. Huh? From there, yeah, yeah. But no, like most people, they'll they'll take the 
the transit bus out to mile 43 and and we have some access points down there on the the braided rivers that you can take on the toklat we're chatting with our friend sharon Steitler. she's known as the bird chick but for the past what couple years sharon you have been up in alaska denali national park working as a public affairs officer you uh, you do see some weird birds up there though don't you things that because you're not that far from the old world right you're not that far from siberia and so you, you get some birds that come from extreme eastern asia yeah. You know, when we think of migration in Minnesota, we think of those birds going down into Mexico or South America. Some of the birds that nest here in this park actually come from Southeast Asia or they're species that I've seen when I've been in Europe uh, or or Israel. And and so, yeah, we have a Siberian blue throat uh, up here in Alaska. In the park itself, we have northern weed ears, which, uh, man, I've seen those all over Europe. So it's it's weird seeing them hang out here in the park. And then we also get wimbrels, who some of those have gone down uh, as far as Australia. So it's just it's it's just interesting to think of all the different points some of the birds come from. And some of the birds that I see migrating over to here in the fall, they may not have necessarily come from Alaska. They may have actually bred in Russia. And then they're going down into some of those cranes that are headed down to uh, New Mexico and Texas and Mexico. Those those are the ones that are up by me. You say cranes? What, what kind of cranes? Sandhill cranes. Sandhills. Okay. So some of the sandhill cranes that might be heading to Mexico, as we speak, may have come from Russia, uh, extreme yeah, eastern yeah. Russia. Yeah. And then there's there's a chance that a common crane could be mixed in because when I've gone to Kearney, Nebraska in the spring, there always seems to be like one or two common cranes uh, mixed in there. And that's that's where they would have come, come from as well. So it's just fascinating to watch all this. And then uh, last week I had strings and strings like thousands of tundra swans migrating over and quite a few of those are going to go down the west coast but some of them could end up mixing in with some of those other flocks and ending up with those birds that uh you all will see on the mississippi river in november now i thought almost all those tundra swans came down through our neck of the woods and then cut what east to chesapeake bay but you were telling me off there some of those tundras uh, actually cruise on down the pacific flyway huh I was looking at my Sibley app, and it lists uh, some of the Pacific areas as as being places for tundra swans. And I was also uh, listening to a a biologist up at Creamers Field in Fairbanks, and he was mentioning that some of those are West Coast birds. I'll be darned. I learn something new every time we chat, Sharon. And uh, there's another example. They're one of our last migratory birds to come through in the fall. When the tundra, when you hear the tundra swans whistling at night, you know uh, fall migration is pretty well wrapped up. Yeah, the only thing after that is the mergansers. Yeah, let's face it, they just don't have as pretty a call, do they? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really crazy. I was uh, I was doing some writing up at my desk at night, and I was kind of hearing this sound. I was like, "What? What is that? That's so familiar." I should know. It's not the sled dogs howling. And I was like, "Oh wait, it's it sounds like Yippie dogs." It's and I, I stood outside on my deck, and it was dark enough that I couldn't really see them, but I could hear them. So I was taking videos in the dark and sending them to my friends. Like, look, I've got the tundra swans already. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Well, Sharon, thanks for spending a segment with us. Sure. Well, thanks for joining us. If folks want to see what you're up to, just look for Bird Chick on all the uh, different social media channels, right? Yeah, I'm not so active on Twitter these days. Mm-hmm. I switched over to Blue Sky, but uh, yeah, Instagram for sure, Facebook for sure. Perfect. Sharon, thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah. That was our friend Sharon Staitler. If you want to know what's going on up at Denali National Park, just uh, Google it up on the National Park website. Let's break. We'll have more of the broadcast after these messages. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline with you for our final segment of this week's broadcast. Thank you for tuning in. couple points to wrap up this week's broadcast with. 
First off, happy anniversary to me. I've uh, been doing uh, WCCO Outdoors for one year. I believe we started it almost exactly one year ago. So uh, really have enjoyed being a part of this uh, station, the, the great people here. And uh, I've had a lot of fun doing the show. hope we can keep it going for many more years. Uh, thank you for tuning in and being uh, a part of it. I get a lot of great feedback about WCCO Outdoors, and I have a lot of fun broadcasting every week. With that, a uh, couple uh, news items. One, I got a call from a reader uh, of Outdoor News who was a little crabby. He said that he and some of his buddies had Googled. They were looking for information on what whatever happened to the shotgun zone uh, and uh, whether or not uh, shotguns, rifles would be allowed statewide. If you listen to this show this past spring, you know I talked about that issue a lot uh, because there was legislation to get rid of the shotgun zone. And he said there was some story on that, that popped up via the thanks to the great Google algorithm from OutdoorNews.com that said that the shotgun zone uh, would was not going to exist anymore. Well, I, I had him send me the link, and it said there was a Senate bill that would have eliminated it. Well, it did not become law. That bill did not pass. I think it eventually died in conference committee. So I went out of my way in my column this week to say, folks, the state, the shotgun zone still exists. It's basically the southern half of the state. You can look at a map at the DNR website or whatever and see, uh, you know, you can have rifles north of that line, shotguns south of that line. But that is still in effect. Uh, it seems like every year momentum builds to pass it. And every year it doesn't, but I, I think probably one of those years it probably will. The reason, again, if you listen to the show, the reason it didn't this past uh, legislative session is because there were several state senators who decided to add uh, languages or add, um, what, what do you call amendments that would have eliminated their county from it. You know, I think Dodge County was one and Olmstead County was another. Uh, which is just a brutally horrible idea, right, having a patchwork of counties where some allow rifles and some do not. I happened to hunt right on a county line, uh, and the thought of, you know, one guy on one side being allowed to use a rifle and another guy being restricted to a shotgun is just obviously ridiculous uh, from an enforcement standpoint and many other uh, points of view. So ultimately, it did not pass. I think it might next year or maybe the following year or someday, but it did not this year. So when the November 4th deer hunt Hunting uh, season rolls around, the firearm season, which, gosh, was that two weeks from yesterday already, folks? When that rolls around, that shotgun zone still exists. I know I'm going overboard here and making that abundantly clear. Uh, we did have some firearms hunting already this weekend. I talked about that last week. We've got the uh, just a bunch of deer permit uh, units around the state that uh, had a, a special antlerless hunt that kicked off uh, uh, over MEA weekend. It started on uh, Thursday, as well as the youth season. And the youth season was statewide. So those kids had to abide by the rifle zone and uh, the shotgun zone. So, gosh, I guess next weekend we're going to talk a lot of deer hunting on this show, aren't we? We're going to have to uh, preview the November 4th uh, deer hunting opener, firearms deer opener. Uh, we had a poaching case that I talked about last week, some ducks, uh, and there was a wolf found in central Minnesota, kind of that Little Falls area found in a ditch. The ducks looked I mean, there were like canvas backs. There were a bunch of really good ducks in there. And duck hunting's not easy. I mean, it takes some effort to go out and, and shoot divers like that. Uh, and so to see a bunch of them just dumped, A, is nauseating because I don't like wanton waste. But B, it's like, what are you doing? All the effort you went into to take those birds and then you, you dump them? Uh, I asked Joe Albert at DNR Enforcement late this past week if there was anything new on that. He said... 
Uh, really nothing new, but there was one little update. Nothing new in terms of finding the poachers who did it. But he said that actually they found some more ducks and some geese in the same general vicinity. So, again, if you have any insight uh, into that case or any others, remember, uh, call the Turn and Poachers hotline, 1-800-POACHER. Uh, easy to remember. Finally, uh, Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame uh, announced its, its uh, what, 2024 class. I don't believe anybody from Minnesota is being inducted. But uh, Dan Small, uh, who's pretty well known just across the uh, the the border in Wisconsin, outdoor Wisconsin on PBS for many years, uh, done a lot of uh, writing, a lot of bylines and outdoor news, a lot of other publications. He's going to be inducted, uh, and I think uh, that is very well-deserved. Folks who know uh, Dan Small are probably not surprised that he's uh, going to be inducted into that. I sure have had a lot of fun here again this week. Happy anniversary to me. It's been a good run. Looking forward to many more weeks, many more years of WCCO Outdoors.